Uh, We thank you again for allowing us to gather together for the many reminders of your grace. And now we pray as we open your word, we pray as we go through this psalm that you would allow us to see you more clearly and to become more like your son Jesus. I pray you would help me to speak clearly and you would help me to speak accurately your word for that is what is needed here. And for your Holy Spirit's power to change us and to work in us and to strengthen us in this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I think I've maybe mentioned this in passing a couple of times, but uh, my eighth grade year, uh, some things happened in my family uh, that required me to stop homeschooling and to go and attend uh, the local middle school. At that time, the school district I was in uh, had just built, I shouldn't say just, it was only a few years old, just built this just massive middle school. And, uh, and so I go from homeschooling to this, and I remember going with my dad to, to the school, and, and the principal gave us a tour around the place. And uh, I, I don't know why he did it, but I remember going back to his office, and uh, he began to help me work through what I, what I was supposed to take. As an eighth grader, it, it was a large school. Of course, there were multiple classes that I had to take. The, you know, every eighth grader had to take this class or that class. Well, this guy's experience as the principal of the school, he said, you know, every time I've gotten one of you homeschoolers into my school, he says, you guys are always ahead of your peers. And, and he said, so I, let me do this for you. And he began to put me in some of the, I guess, what they offered as their advanced classes. It was some English and, and technology, which was fine. Uh, I was a little bit ahead of my peers at that point in those areas. But then uh, he got to math. And he looks at me, and to this day, I don't know what went through his head. Because he says to me, he says, I know exactly where to put you. He says, we have this math class. He says, it's the single most advanced math class in the entire district. And to this day, I don't know why, or my dad sitting next to me didn't say anything. Because at that point in my life, I hated math. I didn't do math. In fact, I probably barely escaped grade school because of math. But again, I didn't say anything, and my dad didn't say anything, and I'm just like, oh, okay. And so the next day, I remember going to school, and I went through my classes, and I got to this class, and the whole thing might as well have been in Russian. I didn't understand a thing about what was going on in that classroom. And again, I can tell you, I have no idea why at that moment when I realized I did not belong in that room, I didn't say anything. I don't know, maybe it was the embarrassment at that point. But, but anyways, because they were advanced students, there wasn't a lot of homework. In fact, a number of the projects we worked on, a number of the assignments we worked on, we always worked on in a group. I just happened to be the quiet one. And it got far enough into the school year that it was too late for me to change classes. And the teacher realized I had no business being there. So now we have a problem. I'm probably uh, six types of math. And that's not an exaggeration. Six types of, types of math. I'm, I'm barely getting my long division in, and these people are using the alphabet to solve math. And he realizes this, and he realizes it's too late to move me on. And he says, you know what, this really isn't your fault. You should have never been in this class to begin with. They should have made sure you were ready for something like this. He says, so what, here's what I'm going to do for you. And he gave me a grade that was just good enough to pass. 
But that's not the end of the story. Four years later, I had moved school districts. And because I had spent two years in one school district in high school, and now I had spent two years or a year and a half at that point in this school district in high school, the two districts counted their classes differently, counted their credits differently. And here I am in my senior year, pulled into the guidance counselor's office, being told there was a good chance I was going to have to go a fifth year to high school because I didn't have enough credits. She said, but I'm going to try and help you. And we, we began to look through everything that I had taken and everything that I had done. And I don't know why she had this information, but she had in front of you the fact that I had taken this advanced math class in eighth grade. She's like, you know what? This was a, a senior level math class. She's like, I'm sure we can count this. And she did. <laughs> and your pastor just told you that he only graduated from high school because somebody had mercy on him. The point of telling you all that is that I would have never made it out of that class on my own strength. And I would have never graduated on time if somebody hadn't used the power that they possessed to help me. And that is the idea of Psalm 29. David... Now, I didn't work this out. I didn't have a bargain with God or anything, but this psalm is written almost directly after a thunderstorm. It's really the only thing we know about the psalm. We don't know where it fits in David's life other than it's probably latter, meaning he's probably king at this point. We don't know anything other than that, but he writes this psalm, and it is a song, S-O-N-G. It is a song of mightiness. A song about strength. And I think this psalm has some things to share with us this morning. Number one. Number one, the mighty or the strong are called to humble worship. The mighty are called to humble worship. This morning, Tim walked up to the pulpit and he encouraged you to stand. He encouraged you to open your hymn book to a certain song. That is the idea of being called to worship. But in this psalm, a specific group of people are being called to come and to humbly worship God. And that group of people are the mighty. The wordplay here is very interesting in the sense that he's saying the mighty should come and recognize that God is mightier and more glorious than them. King David is essentially calling to worship those who are like him. The captains of his army are to come and to give humble worship to God. If you know the story of David... You know that he had a, a, a kind of like a Robin Hood band of merry men. They were called David's men. And these guys won a number of battles. They were considered the, the most skilled fighters in all the land. And he's calling them to come and give humble worship. Those who advise him on the economy, those who were his diplomats, those who helped him make trade deals, they were all called to come and to worship the God of the universe. You could maybe think of the moment in the book of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar does the same thing, except he does it with an idol. He calls all of his government officials to gather, and in Daniel, they're in this large field, and he starts this music, and everybody's supposed to bow down. Now, that was to an idol, and we know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused. 
But the same idea is here. David is calling all of the those who would be considered mighty, those in powerful positions, those who are respected, to come and to worship. And how are they supposed to worship? Well, the text says they are to ascribe or to give glory to God. They are to pronounce and to declare that they uh, are less than him, that he is mightier than they. So mighty men admitting or recognizing that God is mightier than them. Maybe think of it this way. The chairman of the Ways and Means Committee in the Senate is being recognized to see that he is not the president. Well, he might hold a significant position. He's not the president. Or you can think of a page or what is known, what is known as a page or an assistant to the most powerful senator in Washington, D.C. As significant as being a page to the most powerful senator in Washington, D.C. might be, they are not the senator. The great and mighty of society, all recognizing that they might be mighty in this world, they might be glorious in this world, but they are not equal to the greatness and mightiness of God. All the glory that they have brought and possessed in this lifetime, in climbing the ladder, if you will, none of it equals to the glory of God. And we see perhaps why or the difference between David and King Saul. King Saul, as we know, was head and, uh, was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He was literally the biggest guy on the block. He was the strongest guy on the block. And that's why he was chosen to be king. And we can read about his life and we can see how he was successful. We can see how he won a number of battles. We can see how he did well in many areas as a king. But if you follow Saul's story, you also notice something else. Saul gets the big head. Saul begins to think that his decisions are equal with God's decisions. Saul begins to think that he has an authority that is morally equivalent to God's authority. And ultimately is what leads to his downfall. And while King David does have his own sin, we never get any notion that David ever thought himself to be as mighty as the God of the universe. And so here in this psalm, Psalm 29, he's saying to all of them, Come you who are mighty in the nations, humbly worship God. He is glorious, he is mightier, he is holier than they will ever be. And this teaching in Psalm 29 is why God's people, for example, in places like communist China, North Korea, in places like that, this teaching is why Christianity is persecuted so violently. Because this text alone teaches the idea that no matter how mighty or godlike a human being might become, they will never, ever be equal to God. And in places like communist China and North Korea, if you're going to have the type of control and the kind of dictatorship that they have over their nation, their leader must be God. And so a teaching this is that no man can ever reach that point is not one that is friendly. But we have to make sure also that we realize that this text is not something we simply apply to the president or to the Senate. It's certainly an application that comes to me as I sat and studied. I'm pastor of this church. But the Bible says that I'm nothing more than an under-shepherd. This is not my bride, it is the bride of Christ. 
These are not my sheep. They are Christ's sheep. This application needs to come down to our local law enforcement. It must come down to city officials. It must come down to school board members. Again, even we can make the application, it must come down to young men with their strong arms and their endless amounts of energy. It must come down to them with the gray head and their years of experience and their wisdom. It must come down to those who get all A's in school, to those who can throw a football 50 yards or more. And realize in whatever way that you are mighty, you are still not as mighty as him. And you are still called to come and to humbly worship and recognize that he will always be more mighty than you. And one of the things the Bible clearly teaches is one of the reasons or one of the hindrances to authentic worship is that we are full of ourselves. And certainly that includes full of our own righteousness, what theologians call the Elijah syndrome, thinking that we alone are left who truly worship God. We can become full of ourselves when it comes to our own wisdom. We can think of ourselves mother of the year. We can run ourselves a triathlon. We can, we can earn all manner of money. And we think ourselves mighty. And it cripples our worship. But this works, this works in the negative too. Do you know that? We can be obsessed with our own mightiness in the negative. To think of ourselves not strong enough. That our problems are too big. That we, we can't do what, what needs to be done. And we, we say, you know what? I have a hard time with my faith. I have a hard time worshiping because I realize how, how, little, how little strength that I have. It's the same obsession with mightiness. Whether you're, might, you're obsessed with your mightiness because you are mighty, or you're obsessed with your mightiness because you wish you were mighty, it's an obsession with mightiness that cripples our worship. And in our relationships, it leads to some of our worst errors, some of our worst crimes. Our obsession with our own mightiness is actually at the root of our need to be saved. What did Satan say to Eve? Eat this and you'll be like God. So number one, the mighty are called to humble worship. Number two, the mighty God. The mighty God is the object of our worship. Now, verses 4 to 10 are a beautiful piece of poetry. The description here from 4 to 10 in the language is that of a thunderstorm. And what's on top of that, in verses 4 through 10, we see this phrase, the voice of the Lord. Now, the way this is metered out, it's, again, it's difficult to see this a little bit in the English, but, but the way it's metered out is that phrase, the voice of the Lord, is supposed to act the part of thunder, So every time you were to read this, and every time you read that phrase, the voice of the Lord, you are to think of a loud clap of thunder. So verses 4 through 10, walk with me through this. Okay, first of all, in verses 3 through 4, we have the storm coming across the water. Having grown up uh, near Lake Michigan, I've actually seen this multiple times. I've seen, how many of you have ever seen, I didn't watch the storm roll in last night. 
Uh, how many of you have seen a storm that does where the clouds literally roll as they approach where you're going? I've, I've watched that happen or come over Lake Michigan. I've seen the kind of storm that doesn't roll. The clouds just seem to be moving in like a spaceship. I've watched on the shores of Lake Michigan, I've watched a, a, a storm roll in and, and literally begin to produce tornadoes on the surface of the water. That's what verses 3 and 4 are. This is, as you anticipate, the, the verse 4, boom, the voice of the Lord. The storm is beginning to make its way across the water. Soon it is going to make landfall. You are supposed to see this potential of power making its way towards you. Verses 6 through 9, the storm makes landfall. And boom, goes the thunder again. The lightning strikes and the trees are now splinters. The wind blows and the trees' roots give way. And all of a sudden, these mighty trees of Lebanon are falling every which way. You ever seen a storm like that pull through? Last night, we enjoyed the the wind. We didn't see it happen, but after the storm had moved through and, and things were a little bit calmer, we looked out there and a large branch had come off a tree. And underneath that tree was one of those lawn chairs. I think it was Karis's lawn chair. And that branch landed on that chair. And I think that chair is no longer usable. But this storm, the thunder is loud. You see the voice of the Lord shakes the window. This, have you ever had, have you ever experienced the kind of thunder that, that shakes your windows? That makes the ground move? The voice of the Lord thunder again and, and lightning and the birds stop and the animals begin to scatter. Boom goes the thunder and boom goes the lightning. Verse 9. It's so loud and so violent. The picture there, verse 9, makes the hinds to calf. The idea there is that a deer gives birth. It is so loud. It is so violent. The deer has been scared into giving birth and is running away from its offspring. It is fearing for its life. Verse 10, we have the aftermath. And what do you have in an aftermath of a major and mighty and violent thunderstorm? Verse 10, what do you have? Floods. The floods begin to roll in. But God is there even in the flood. And this picture of God arriving as this great and mighty thunderstorm is, is found in a number of places in Scripture. He shows up in Mount Sinai in the form of a thunderstorm, and the people of God ask him to reduce his presence among them. Many times God's people were in trouble, and on the field of battle, God showed up in what form? A storm. And so what do we see here? We see that the mighty are called to worship This God, this mighty God, who is described here as this immensely violent and powerful storm. And they are to see that as mighty as they might be, they will never equal this kind of power. Now, of course, we as a state here in Nebraska, of course, we've we've experienced this this year, haven't we? Probably the most powerful weapon that human beings have created is the, what, is the atomic bomb. And as the storms rolled through here in Nebraska, 
And we saw the aftermath of the things that kind of ha- that, that happened. I remember reading articles, and, I, and maybe you remember watching the news. I heard several people describe the damage and destruction of these storms as what? As if a bomb, a nuclear bomb, had gone off. In fact, I remember reading one article where the author, perhaps with a little bit of hyperbole, saying it, it, that it was like multiple atomic bombs had gone off. And for God, it was just a storm. You can get on YouTube, can't you? And watch the destruction of hurricanes and tsunamis. These exquisite pieces of of architecture. Watch these great feats of engineering. And the waves hit them and what happens? The wind blows and what happens? They're gone. Shattered into pieces, made into rubble. When it comes to the power and glory of God, there is no equal. Hosea, prophet Hosea reminds us that that mankind is constantly trying to replace God with power. He tries to replace God with, with his own mightiness. We try to replace God with our best forms of government, with our best ideas for the family, with our biggest buildings and our greatest companies and with armies and, and weapons. We create our empires. We try to replace God with our technology. However, none of it and all of it put together and all of our greatness, we are still less than the weakness of God. The Apostle Paul put it this way, if men were so great... If men were so wise, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And we look at the life of Christ and we see that God uses humility. He uses weakness. He uses suffering. He uses death. All things that would paralyze us. All things that would stop us in our tracks. God uses those things to accomplish our salvation. It is through weakness and suffering that we get the gospel of Jesus Christ which the Bible calls the power of God unto salvation. And that leads to the third and final point. The mighty are called to a humble worship of God. The mighty God is the object of our worship. And number three, our our mightiness comes from God. Our mightiness comes from God. Verse 11, it's a great closing So we have an admonition to recognize that God is mightier. And here in the closing verse, verse 11, the psalmist prays that this mighty God would give strength or would give mightiness to his people. And that from that strength, out of that strength would come peace. Of course, we've had this explained to us in our New Testament, right? The Apostle Paul talks about his own weakness. He tells us that God gave him a thorn in the flesh. We know it's a supernatural thorn because nothing Paul did actually was able to be rid of it. And so he prays, he tells us three times that God would take away this thorn that was causing him to be weak. But in that moment, the mighty God teaches the mighty apostle that the mighty apostle is more usable to the mighty God When he is the weak apostle. Because when he is the weak apostle. 
Then he receives his strength from God. And that strength is the strength that was expressed to us in this psalm than in this picture of the storm. And for the Apostle Paul, that settles the matter. And let me just ask you a question. Why wouldn't he make that trade? If in his weakness, this kind of mightiness becomes available, a mightiness greater than his own, why wouldn't he want it? God's strength made perfect in his weakness. It is the grace of God to the humble. A grace that leads to peace. Isn't that how a number of our, our, our books of the Bible begin in the New Testament? Grace and peace. Strength from God and the peace that comes with it to you. And the, gospels, the gospel teaches us this is, this is always the order of things. It is not until the sinner recognizes his weakness. It is not until the, the human, he or she, admits that they don't have the strength to hit the mark. It is not until the, the, the human recognizes we need strength from outside of ourselves. We need a, a mightiness that is alien to us, that we need Jesus Christ. It, that is where it always has to start, in weakness. Because when we put our faith in Jesus Christ to be all the mightiness that we need, that is called faith. And as the Bible says, being pardoned by God, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John tells us in 1 John, if this is not the order of your life, if you're not ready to build your life on the reality of your weakness and the mightiness and the need for the mightiness of God in your life, then the truth is not in you. The power displayed in verses 4 through 10, the power displayed by this storm is the power that is promised to be the strength of God's people. This is a psalm for the, for the proverbial life's stormy weather. And verse 11 is the prayer to pray. Lord, give me strength and may the Lord's strength be the reason I have peace. So this past week, June 6th, what was June 6th? D-Day. And so obviously there were a number of ceremonies and uh, perhaps the most famous movie that has to do with D-Day would be what? Saving Private Ryan. You, most of you know the story, but if you don't, let me just explain it. So a group of men are given a special mission to go into the field of battle and find and bring home the last son of the Ryan family. And over the course of the movie, this group of men, uh, several of them are killed, including the beloved captain towards the end who with his dying breath tells Private Ryan to earn this rescue. And then you move to the end of the movie. And Private Ryan is now an old man. An old man who is at the grave of this captain. And he's desperate to know if he's lived well enough to earn what those men had done for him. Private Ryan has used up the entire strength of his life. But Private Ryan doesn't know if it was enough. But when Jesus sacrificed his life for us, his words to us aren't earn it. 
Because we never could. Because it is by his mightiness, by his strength, we are saved. And so we take this into the storms of life. As I mentioned in Sunday school, what do we do in hospital waiting rooms? We start listing out the what ifs, don't we? What if this happens? What if that happens? And in those moments, we experience or we're face to face with the reality that there are circumstances, there are outcomes that could happen in our life that if they happen, we are certain will crush us. We are made aware that we do not have the strength to face what could possibly be coming. We're confronted with the reality of our weakness. And in that moment, as a believer, the question is, do you sit there in that weakness full of anxiety or do you run to divine strength? Do you go to the only source of peace? And one thing we need to be reminded of as Christians is that God promises both inward and outward peace. Now, all of us want the outward peace, right? How many of you would love to have the riches of Solomon? We love the outward peace. But what good is outward peace if we're at war with our conscience? Or as Jesus says to us, what good is it to gain the whole world and what? Lose your soul. And so through Jesus Christ, we get our inward peace. We're made, we, we get peace with God. But what good is inner peace when there's war in the streets? Well, the Bible teaches us that this strength, this peace will also be found in Jesus. It was part of the last thing series that we just finished. A day that will come but by the mightiness of Christ, injustices will be righted. Relationships broken by death renewed. And we, the people of God, shall live in peace in the glorious garden city of God. Inner peace, outer peace. To sum up, Psalm 29 calls us to lay aside our sinful ideas, lay aside any desire to think we are equal to or like God, but humbly come and worship and give glory to the one who is mighty and holy. A God whose power is likened to a violent storm. A mighty God whose strength, as we read through the Bible, has scattered his enemies again and again and again. And a God by his strength and whose mightiness accomplished our salvation through Christ. And so we are to flee to this strength for our salvation. And we are to flee to this mightiness again and again in our times of trouble. Because in his strength is where we found peace with him through faith in the sacrifice of Christ. And it is by his mightiness that someday we get this everlasting peace by faith in the lordship and the mightiness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this wonderful and beautiful psalm. A reminder that no matter how mighty we are, we are called to the humble worship of the God of the universe. And that the God of the universe that we worship is mighty and mighty in ways that we cannot get our minds around. But you have promised that your mightiness can become our mightiness by this simple expressing and accepting our weakness. 
For this is the pathway to salvation. This is the way, Lord, we, we find peace with you. And this is certainly the way we will find peace in our circumstances. And this is certainly through your mightiness is why one day we will find peace in the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.